0: You're listening to MoCast, the official podcast of Mo.gov. Whether it's news, upcoming events, or information on state services, we've got you covered. On this episode of MoCast, we'll be continuing our discussion on the recent natural disasters that hit Missouri earlier this year. We'll be speaking with representatives from the Department of Health and Senior Services, FEMA and SEMA. In the studio with us is Jonathan Garut and Melissa Friel. They're both of the Department of Health and Senior Services, and they're gonna help us continue our discussion about flooding and disasters when it comes to cleanup. Uh, Guys, thanks for coming in and sitting down with us. Thank you.
1: Thank you for the opportunity.
0: Uh, so I kind of briefly introduced you guys here, but if you guys could go in a little bit more detail on what you do with the Department of Health and Senior Services, mainly when it comes to things like disasters, flooding, tornado that we've had. And Melissa, I guess we'll just start with you.
1: I'm the coordinator of the Office of Emergency Coordination and during disasters, the Office of Emergency Coordination oversees and helps to coordinate the public health emergency response for the state.
0: In layman's terms, what is that kind to of mean? What are some of the duties that you guys do?
1: We bring together the subject matter experts in the department to coordinate and to provide a unified response so that everybody's sitting at the same table in the same room looking at what the situation is, how we can provide an effective response, and the bottom line is protecting the lives of Missourians. We work with the folks who oversee things like Vector control, and that's talking about mosquitoes and how we can prevent mosquito issues in the state, because obviously with the standing water that results from flooding, that's a significant issue. We work with our epidemiologist in the event there are any kind of outbreaks as a result of the water or people being injured in the flooding. We coordinate with the state emergency management agency and just work as the liaison with all these groups to help to provide a coordinated effort
0: the mosquitoes and the epidemiology. I definitely want to dive back into that, but uh, let's get Jonathan in here. Uh, Jonathan, if you wouldn't mind telling us uh, what your role is in the department and what have you guys been doing during the disasters?
2: Yeah, so my my day-to-day role is the the section administrator for the section for environmental public health. Uh, That includes all things environmental that, that are related to public health, so everything from uh, food safety and sanitation to chemical risks and, and associated things in both in the community and in, in the home and even in the workplace to some extent. Um, so then in an in a emergency or a disaster like a flood or a tornado, uh, we're, we're involved with to, to some degree that, that initial response. Uh, a lot of that of course happens at the local level. There's a lot of first responders that are on the ground dealing with that in real time. But we're uh, there assisting them, backing them up, providing some expertise on, you know, chemical risks. Uh, again, on this, the things that are really in our wheelhouse, are at chemical risks, food safety, vector-borne disease is, is not necessarily within uh, the section for environmental public health, but it's uh, very much related to what we do and, and we work with uh, those experts pretty routinely.
0: Is there a lot of cross collaboration with your guys as to uh, sectors? I'll call it within the department. Are you guys kind of like teaming up in, in these events? Yeah, there has to be.
2: There, there has to be we, we practice for that sort of thing uh, routinely and then when you know when the disaster strikes, uh, we have that relationship built so that so that we can work together very well
1: and that's the key the job of the state is to support the locals because as they say disasters begin and end locally and we make sure they have the resources they need to be effective. for example tetanus vaccine the department's provided a lot of tetanus vaccines to counties across the state who've been impacted by these floods because people are cleaning out their homes they're in floodwaters. and floodwaters not only have chemicals but they have bacteria that can really cause significant health issues for those who are impacted by these floods.
0: Now, talking about the floodwaters, we're in the moment where they're receding. I'm sure there's still flooding here and there. With the waters receding, what are some things that people should be keeping in mind when they're cleaning up and they're getting back to homes that they've had to evacuate or businesses? As folks are going back home, they're obviously, they're going to
2: come into contact or possibly come into contact with a lot of hazardous materials whether that's the chemicals that may have been released into the water from things in their house or uh, as Melissa said the the bacteria mold uh, those things grow that that happens you're going to find that run into that and so people need to take precautions uh, using correct protective equipment gloves uh, masks maybe boots common sense things then then some things that maybe aren't so common as you're cleaning up uh, you know, lots of people will be going back into those situations. And it's an environment that's different from what it was before. It's, it's not as, uh, you know, there's slip trips and falls hazards, things to be uh, aware of uh, from that standpoint. Then when you're cleaning up, watch out at that you uh, don't mix hazardous cleaners. Be cognizant of uh, lots of power washer use after a, a flooding event. There's been mold that's been growing. So, so people are gonna to need to dry things out, but they're also gonna to need to clean that mold off. And so they'll be using cleaners that they haven't used maybe before. Um, and so awareness of how that is done safely uh, is is a role that we uh, try to provide and keep that education forefront in, in people's mind. Again, uh, power washer uh, use uh, is prominent and there's there's things like uh, uh, carbon monoxide uh, poisoning that uh, can that is a real uh, concern and, and people end up using a power washer in a situation that they haven't before, putting it in a location that they'd never thought of putting it previously, and all of a sudden there's a, a possible carbon monoxide poisoning event. Not only do we monitor for those sorts of things as far as a surveillance function after the fact, but Obviously we're in the business of prevention and preventing those things from happening in the first place is our, our primary uh, desire. So educating the public about those things is a big component of what we are doing.
1: Snakes and other critters can impact houses, you know, during the floodwaters. They're looking for refuge too. And they may take refuge in your home. So you need to watch for snakes and raccoons and other critters who also could be living in your home now. So. That need to be very careful of that. And when you tear out drywall or whatever, what's what's back in that drywall? And there are also orphan containers because things float in the river and in, in the floodwaters. And you have to be very, very careful what is now on your property that was not there before.
0: And what constitutes an orphan container? I'm guessing a container of some kind, but is it like, uh, could it just be any container? Is it like hazardous material? What, what kind of falls under the realm of, of, of those?
1: It's a technical term for any container that that can um, house a dangerous chemical. You know, a lot of propane tanks float during, uh, during floods or just barrels of chemicals. So uh, actually it's Department of Natural Resource who qualifies those and Environmental Protection Agency as orphan containers. And during flooding, you see many, many of those in places they're not supposed to be.
0: Sounds like there's a plethora of things that you can run into when you're getting back into your home or your business, when flood or any kind of disaster, but primarily flood. Uh, To kind of limit it, what are some of the most common things to run into? What are some of the things that you guys hear about the most?
1: Well, Jonathan mentioned it, Um, mold. Mold is a really big consideration because floods are the perfect environment, especially when summer comes along. You have humidity, you have water you know, perfect environment for mold and especially black mold. And everyone is very concerned about cleaning their house of black mold because it can be have a definite health impact.
0: Now, is the uh, black mold critters, things of that nature, I guess, depending on the severity of it. These are probably things that people can tackle on their own or do they need maybe outside assistance to to know what to look for when it comes to carbon monoxide or things of that nature?
2: I think Missourians as a a general rule are are pretty resilient and they like to tackle things on their own. And most of the time, that's perfectly fine. I I think we'd leave it up to an individual to decide when it's kind of gone above their ability to do, but uh, there certainly are cleanup crews out. There are lots of volunteer groups that have, have been helping. I mean, my brother was impacted by the tornadoes in Southwest Missouri, and there were a lot of volunteers that were helping It was great to see. I was there uh, with him, but but there were lots of volunteers there uh, both before and after I was there uh, helping with with storm cleanup. That's one of the things that that we see from a positive standpoint out of a disaster, right, is neighbors helping neighbors.
1: You know, the internet is our friend. There's lots of great information on the Department of Health and Senior Services webpage to tell you what to look for and how to clean black mold and how to clean your house after disaster along with Department of Natural Resources and so the internet is our friend and can really help Missourians know what to look out for and how to mitigate or prevent themselves from being further injured and to really clean their house after these floods.
2: The, the central location for that is that, you know, recovery.mo.gov. So, you know, I've sent several people there. Uh, it's a place where a lot of that information is just is housed. You can get to, to our web pages, you can get to DNR's web pages, you can see MoDOT's information there, SEMA resources on, you know, if, if there are resources available to you. All of that is, is linked there. And I, I've sent many people there for information.
0: Perfect, I was gonna ask you guys, where are some of the resources people can find? And you guys hit the nail on the head, so thanks for that. Uh, So I'll kinda roll into uh, the mosquitoes that you had mentioned. Obviously, standing water mosquitoes and other bugs are gonna love that. Our crew actually went up to uh, Clarksville a couple of weeks ago to speak with the mayor. Their floodwaters had receded quite a bit, but just the amount of bugs and, and things that were basically just trying to latch themselves onto us the whole time was, was pretty substantial. So can you talk a little bit about the dangers there? So, so I might take a first shot at that at
2: least. Obviously the floodwaters create a good environment for, for bugs, for mosquitoes in particular. It's my understanding that those, there's different types of mosquitoes, right? And those types of mosquitoes that are uh, most associated with floodwaters are a nuisance. But they're not necessarily known to transmit disease, so there's some uh, reassurance there. Individuals should still have, uh, you know, use protection of, you know, DEET, uh, long-sleeved shirts, and that sort of thing to prevent uh, those nuisance mosquitoes as well. When the floodwaters recede, uh, there are other types of mosquitoes that uh, like those environments of smaller bodies of water, the tires that are left with water in them, or buckets, or whatever sorts of debris might hold water. That's where some of those uh, vector type mosquitoes, the ones that might transmit disease, are more likely to, to breed and grow and come from. So as folks are cleaning up, right, tipping those things over and making sure that that standing water uh, doesn't stay around is an important part of the cleanup effort. And, and then again, using, you know, permethrin indeed DEET uh, to protect yourself is uh, an important part of prevention
0: through the flood process has there been anything that's come to light to the health department about diseases that have been contracted or kind of illnesses through the flood have, have we seen any uh, cases of that
2: you know i i asked that uh, just some of our uh, disease surveillance folks that uh, are continuously monitoring those things a lot of diseases are uh, reportable to the state so a provider a physician a lab will be required and will submit any sort of test results to the state and they're constantly monitoring for lots of those diseases. I'm not aware that we've seen any, you know, increases or spikes that people want to know about a lot of times, but we stay diligent with our efforts to inform the public, uh, remind them of what safety precautions to take. We've been going to the uh, to the marks, to the to multi-agency resource centers, and at those we've been able to provide in some cases, things like uh, DEET insect repellent, uh, along with just the general good information about what folks should be doing. Again, a lot of it is common sense and people know it, but a reminder in, in this time, in this moment, uh, is very timely and, and helps to keep it at the front of people's uh, minds. Another one of the things that we've had information or requests come to us from uh, local health departments and local communities for ways that they can help control their mosquito population. So the, the Department of Health and Senior Services has provided some resources directly to local health agencies to combat mosquitoes in their communities. And there are communities around the state that do routine mosquito abatement, that sort of thing. So those things help.
1: Really recommend that if you're having mosquito issues, contact your local public health agency, because as Jonathan mentioned, the state has provided the locals with briquettes and those are um, tossed by government officials into standing bodies of water, but they're also being given some mosquito rings that individuals like you and I can just put in you know, standing bodies of water that will eliminate the mosquitoes. Mosquitoes can grow in a tablespoon of water, so as Jonathan issued the tip and toss. If you have any standing water on your property, get rid of it. Dump it as quickly as possible so those mosquitoes do not have the opportunity to breed and grow.
0: So simply being diligent about rooting out all that water will go a long way to kind of mitigate all that. And then, like you said, the rings and the, I guess the little briquettes you can throw in there will just go further for you. And you can also yeah.
1: purchase those rings at Walmart or Lowe's or Home Depot, any of those supply stores, they come in packets of twos. And if you have any standing water you can't get rid of, just toss toss one in, follow the directions on the box and that should help with the situation. But the key is getting rid of that water as quickly as possible.
0: Uh, So we've talked a little bit about kind of what you guys were doing during the flooding. Uh, What about now when we're kind of in the post stage? What does that look like for your guys' department?
1: The latest issue was the vector control on mosquitoes and providing the local public health agencies with those assets so they can help help their residents. Um, We provided some Tdap or tetanus vaccine towards the end of the response, but that's uh, tapered off because we've moved into the recovery. Jonathan mentioned the multi-agency resource centers, the department was there, and those were one stop shop for victims of the flooding. And there may be more around the state. Uh, We recently received the declaration from the federal government for this flooding disaster. And so that, that really moves and will allow residents and citizens of Missouri to receive more assistance for flooding, especially for their homes.
2: As we're entering kind of the recovery phase and the waters are receding, one of the things that the state folks from the Bureau of Environmental Health Services are doing is helping local health agencies and helping local businesses in, in retail food to get back and find out what sort of impacts there were in their businesses and how to get those businesses back open safely. Make sure that, that foods that were impacted by flooding, either flooding or, or the lack of electricity for a long period of time, those things, you know, those things don't make for safe food and getting a, a restaurant or some other retail food establishment back on its feet is a big priority for us and for the local health agency so that's something that they'll be doing now as the, the waters are finally coming back down i mean some of those places were underwater for a long time
0: how does that translate to the everyday citizen when they try to get back into their homes and they start going through their pantries their refrigerator what kinds of food items are safe to keep and what kind or, you know just need to throw out like I'm guessing canned goods would be safe in some fashion uh, but if you could go into more detail
2: yeah right I mean any any sort of perishable food items and anything that came into contact with the the flood water really should be discarded um, except like you mentioned maybe some of those steel cans sort of goods uh, except for maybe the ones with the pop tops those are hard to decontaminate uh, but there's some guidance on our website again you can get to through the through the website that we talked about before. You can clean, and sanitize those steel cans, but you know, if there's a doubt about it, you know, when in doubt, throw it out. Non-porous surfaces can be, can be cleaned, but things like wooden cutting boards that have been in floodwaters, they should go. Other things that, that you might not think about, like uh, baby bottles, those sorts of things should just go. Uh, it's really hard to disinfect those sufficiently, so we recommend that those things be tossed. Uh, but yeah those are the sorts of the things that a homeowner is going to be coming into uh, to contact with and having to make decisions about uh, as they go back home the pantry a lot of it you know unfortunately just like uh, just like the mold and you have a lot of cleaning to do there and a lot of stuff that's going to be discarded carpeting uh, a lot of drywall a lot of the perishable and uh, food items is is right in that same category if i can just thinking about food makes me also think about something we haven't touched on, but is one of the big things that the department does through senior disability services is work with area agencies on aging, as well as uh, senior centers around the state in providing meals. Um, and even during the flood response efforts, when the waters were up, there was still all of that work going on through the Department of Health and through our partners locally and regionally to make sure that you know, some of our most vulnerable citizens still had the services up to and including you know, meals provided to them. When I was talking with some of those folks even today about the, uh, the good work that went on and uh, is still going on and, and even some of the, uh, the neat stories about you know overcoming the floodwaters uh, to still get those meals to our seniors who are homebound. I was even talking to about one in, in northeastern Missouri where they had to drive you know, miles and miles out of their way because of roads that were flooded in order to get to three or four residents, and they found a way to do it. And there was a, an isolated resident, senior, that needed meals provided, and their neighbor actually uh, delivered those meals by a kayak. Wow. I mean, so these are the, the really neat stories that just go on. Uh, Neighbors Helping Neighbors and and the state health agency helping to make sure that
0: those people are supported Yeah, It's always good to hear that in times like this people step up and and they help each other and And like you said, they will drive miles out of the way and they'll take a kayak to you just to make sure that you're taken care of And that's always great to hear Uh, I kind of want to go back just for a second on something that we were previously talking about about throwing out stuff is there any kind of proper disposal method because from what i've heard that floodwaters can carry all kinds of things in there and should you just be throwing it in the trash for the trash man to come pick up or is there a special procedure to get rid of these things so it's you know taken care of properly so uh
2: melissa mentioned earlier that the department of natural resources is largely involved with that and they'll have things like household hazardous waste cleanup events periodically and and not just uh, DNR, but lots of local agencies uh, will be involved with those things even when it's not after a flood or a disaster. But yes, you want to make sure that you separate those things in the the debris that's around your house or in your house so that you're not mixing different chemicals. It's difficult after a flood, right? Because sometimes those labels are gone and you don't know, as, as uh, Melissa again was mentioning earlier with those orphan containers, what is in this. I don't know Um, and so uh, if there are questions folks you know certainly they can call the department of health Uh, they can call dnr through their spill line that's open 24 hours a day and they can ask those questions there's the websites that that are available for that sort of thing but handling that sort of cleanup safely is um, one of the things that that we can provide at least information on how to do that
0: this is a question we've been asking everyone that we've been talking to so i'll ask you guys here too When these events happen, what kind of experiences do you guys take away that you can then apply to the next inevitable event that's going to happen?
1: After an event, we do what's called a hot wash. You know, what went well? What needs improvement? What could we do better? And so we always learn, just like the locals do. And that's a big part of it is working with the local public health agencies. Did we provide you the support you needed? And what could we do better? I personally drove up on a Sunday to Brunswick. Tdap, tetanus vaccine, because they needed it that bad. That town at one point in time was an island and the only way in was through boat. Um, And again, what Jonathan was talking about, neighbors, helping neighbors, they were in boats and making sure that their residents were taken care of. We also look at internally, you know, what have we done well? What what can we improve? And we, we always learn and think of better ways to be more effective. We have not, knock on wood, had flooding, significant flooding for a few years. So, you know, dusting off our, our best practices and working together with both the locals and nonprofit organizations and with state agencies to provide the best support we can.
2: I think there's all kinds of technical things that we learn, like you said, um, through, through hot washes. And what you were saying there reminded me too that I think one of the benefits is the, the relationships that you end up building through these responses of folks in in a county that you might not usually work with even though we may exercise and and train beforehand with certain groups with maybe local health agencies and fire departments or other first responders when you end up going through the event with them you develop a relationship that's different than just the phone call and that stays with you too so that uh, you build on that and you have a better relationship if there is a another disaster in
0: the future. I don't want to put either of you on the spot, but have you guys discovered anything through the hot wash that either negative or positive that you can apply to the next event?
1: The ability to deliver tetanus vaccine as quickly as possible, and what does that look like? The locals have some, the local public health agencies and hospitals and clinics have some tetanus vaccine on hand, but it's it's never enough in a disaster experience. You know, they, they need, hundreds of doses of vaccine and what can the state do to effectively deliver that because we have several programs and programs are great and we can order that and within 24 hours you know if it's monday through wednesday within 24 hours we can drop ship that to the local public health agencies but what if it's on a thursday Uh, we have had our state employees deliver tetanus vaccine around the state and pick it up from another local public health agency and deliver it. So again, just um, clarifying and strengthening that process is, is a lesson learned.
0: So I feel like we've covered quite a bit of ground and some really good information. Is there anything you guys want to add that I didn't think to ask or we hadn't talked about yet?
1: Just reiterating that This is a synergistic effort of the local government, local public health agencies, emergency managers, firefighters, the public, the non-governmental organizations, the state agencies. We all have to work together for the greater good of the, the citizens and the residents of our state. And we see the best in disasters. And I've been in the disaster business for over 20 years. And you always see the best in neighbors helping neighbors. And the state supporting the locals and what the locals do best. It's, it's always very heartwarming and strengthens my belief in the human spirit when we see the responses for these disasters.
0: In the studio with us is Deb Hendricks, the State Volunteer Coordinator with SEMA. She's going to help us continue our discussion on the recent flooding. Deb, thanks for coming in and speaking with us.
3: I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me. If you could
0: just start off just talking a little bit about what you do with SEMA. I know I just introduced you as the State Volunteer Coordinator. What does that mean? What do you guys do?
3: I am the Unit Manager for the Emergency Human Services Unit. My unit and I have the great honor and pleasure all the time of working with voluntary agency partners around the state, United Way, the Red Cross, the Salvation Army, Missouri Baptist Disaster Relief. I could go on and on and on because there are so many. And we work with them in blue skies and gray skies when things are not happening like flooding and tornadoes and then again when they are.
0: As the state volunteer coordinator, I'm guessing all the hundreds of people that come in and say, hey, I want to help with this situation, you guys are basically the gatekeepers and funneling them to where they need to be with these partners?
3: That's part of what we do. It's okay. We have been working for a long time. And, and actually, if you don't mind a little history lesson, Please. let me go back to the 1970s. Back after Hurricane Camille, there were a number of faith-based organizations and the Red Cross that got together and they were all helping organizations and they all went in to help and they said, wait a minute. If we're all going in and trying to do the same thing, we're duplicating services and we're also leaving gaps. And so they formed what's known as the National VOAD, the National Voluntary Organizations Active in Disasters. And what National VOAD did then and still does to this day is all those organizations get together and they choose a mission so that we know what organization does what. And so we know that in Missouri, when it comes to sheltering, the Red Cross is our primary shelter organization. Missouri Baptist Disaster Relief and the Salvation Army are two of our primary feeding organizations. It goes on and on and on. And so we don't have to sit and count or organize each individual little player. We can simply get volunteers and organize them with those organizations and know that they are representing well, that they are covered by uh, the liability of the organization and that they're being led in the right direction to help survivors in the best way possible.
0: Now, the state has funds and, and organizations like SEMA and FEMA and, and all these to help in these disasters. But when disasters like the flooding and the recent tornadoes happen, you always see just monumental amount of volunteers coming in. Can you talk about just kind of the importance of getting that volunteer help and, and what's it mean for getting these disasters kind of, not wrangled in, but you know, just under control in a way that people get their lives back to normal.
3: It's incredible to watch the organizations come in and be there for people that they don't know, that they've never met, and do amazing things for them. Go through their house and tear out nasty, wet, carpet and pull out drywall that is covered in black mold and go in and remediate that mold for people that they don't know. They don't do it because they're getting paid for it. Obviously they're volunteers. They do it because they have the heart for it, but there is no way that we could meet the cost of that with any sort of paid-for government organization we don't get dedicated state dollars for disaster relief there's no pot that we go to for of state dollars when there's a disaster that hits and Dole it out to survivors. We rely on these volunteers. We also at SEMA, we're a small agency. We don't have very many people. So we don't have troops that we can call in and say, oh, you know, let's muster the troops and go out and do this. We rely on these organizations and they do such a phenomenal job and have such an amazing heart for it.
0: So, in a nutshell, when these disasters happen, These volunteers that come in, they're very, very crucial to just getting everything underway and helping the cleanup and all of that.
3: Absolutely. And they're there from the very first moment that they're allowed in by fire and law enforcement into the impacted area. And they also, because many of them are faith based organizations, in addition to providing hands on work, they also provide help and hope through. Comfort and and chaplaincy and emotional and spiritual care, so um, it it helps people in a number of different ways.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Can you talk a little bit about what your guys's division were doing, kind of the tasks and and the coordination that was happening with the recent flooding and tornado events?
3: Immediately, the state emergency operations center activates. That's one of SEMA's primary functions. We all go down to the State Emergency Operations Center. And what happens down there is that the communities will call and they'll say, we need dump trucks. We need volunteers to sandbag. Oh, and we also need sandbags. And we also need sand. And so we are, amongst all of us at SEMA, in our different areas, we're taking care of all of those different pieces. So our operations people take the calls and they send it to logistics to get the sand and the bags and then they send it to us as well to say okay we've got the sand we've got the bags now we need 200 sandbaggers and so then our job in my shop is to send that out to the volunteers and say okay who's got 200 sandbaggers that can go to Clarksville and sometimes it's I have a hundred and he has 100 and she has 100 and so oh we don't need your 100 but we're going to take the you know so a lot of it is that coordination and then we go oh we've got our 200 for Clarksville but now we need another 100 at Lexington so it's keeping all of those moving pieces moving in the right direction and making sure that help goes where it needs to but nobody's frustrated because there's someplace that they're not needed
0: and as the situation kind of unfolds and progresses once you guys have designated volunteers and resources to a certain area what is your guys's role through the event and then at the post event I'll say
3: so we do that response piece and then We also do recovery. We're emergency human services, and so uh, we say we're the people people. We certainly have a group of folks at SEMA who do an excellent job working on infrastructure. They're very concerned about getting the roads and the bridges and culverts and all of that, working and all of that, and we have floodplain management that deals with their thing. We're focused on those individuals and families all the time. So after the flood, it's our job to work with those voluntary organizations again, some of the same organizations, some of them different, to help them into recovery, to try to get them back to whatever their new normal is going to look like. And that's a long-term process. Uh, We're talking years. We are just finishing up the last of the homes from the Joplin tornado, which happened in 2011. So this is a very long-term process. Again, it's the voluntary organizations that are there, but we support them in any way that we possibly can. One of the first things that we do are multi-agency resource centers. And in my mind, they are sort of the bridge between response and recovery and what a mark is is a one-stop shop for those disaster survivors. They can come in and they can get information because we have, say, the Department of Insurance. We have the Department of Agriculture. If they're farmers and they need to know, what do I do about you know crop insurance? How, what will my homeowner's insurance cover? Will my car insurance cover the loss of my car? So all of that information is really important. And then some of the voluntary organizations will also provide vouchers and gift cards and even packaged foods and cleanup supplies and rakes and shovels and all kinds of things, actual supplies to help them with their cleanup. So that's all there in that one spot. If it weren't for the mark, they would have to call all of those individual organizations, and that would be a long and frustrating path for them.
0: I'd imagine, yeah. Yeah,
3: so we're trying to make that easier by having it all in one place. We also offer a hot meal, at least one at every mark, because in a lot of disasters, it's been a long time since folks have had a hot meal. They're either staying at a hotel or they're couch surfing. Who knows where they're staying and if they're getting good hot meals. So we try to do that and we also have child care available so that the parents can go through these different stations without needing to mind the children and be distracted. But that's also a nice break if you're in your hotel room for a week and a half with small children. Sometimes it's nice to have a, a little <laughs> break from yeah. that and it's good for the kids too. The child care providers we have are specially trained disaster child care providers and so part of what they're doing is looking for trauma in children and trying to figure out if it's serious enough that they need to tell the parents that additional help needs to be provided to that child because this is not easy. You know, that's what, one of the things that I always tell people at the mark is, this is not easy, and we all get that. There's no shame in being here. We hear so often in Missouri, I don't like to ask for help. It's hard for me to ask for help. I get that. I totally get that. We're, we're bootstrappers in Missouri. We pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps, but this is different. There's no manual for how to bootstrap your way out of having eight feet of water in your house. This is a time when you need to accept help. The other thing we hear very often is, I'm afraid that if I take help, I've seen my neighbors, they need it more than I do, and I don't wanna take the help from them. And it's amazing to me to hear that from people who have essentially lost everything and they're still saying i'm worried about my neighbor more than myself so we always have to ensure that we're saying to them there's plenty of help all of these people are here to help you and they're helping your neighbor so go ahead and take what they're offering because they're also here for you it's heartening to watch people still taking care of each other even in their own worst times
0: you've Put the nail in the head. Here in Missouri, we're very resilient. We're gonna get ourselves out of this hole. So I was gonna ask if there was any kind of stigma or anything that you know comes with going to a multi-agency resource center or a MARC for short, as you've been saying. So I'm glad you addressed that. Uh, what I'll ask then is, is there a threshold that somebody needs to meet before they can use those resources, or if it just like if you've been impacted by these kind of events, you can go and get the help that you need, whether it's large or small?
3: So everybody can get some help at the mark. Sometimes it's just information, depending on how much you've been impacted. The beginning of the multi-agency resource center process is a damage assessment by the American Red Cross of the home. And they do their own damage assessment, separate from the one that's done by the government. Theirs is simply a drive-by, look at your home, and they will assess it and base their cash assistance on their determination of the damage to your home. The Salvation Army also bases their decision about vouchers and things on the Red Cross's damage assessment. You're gonna get more cash assistance if you're more deeply impacted at the mark, but the information is there for everyone.
0: Now, with the ongoing flooding that's been happening this year, we're probably going to maybe get get more as the year goes on. Can you kind of put this event in perspective of maybe some examples of some of the things that your department's doing? Maybe there's some particular stories that have come out of instances that you guys have helped or seen that maybe just kind of puts it all into context.
3: Oh, the stories are many. There was a lady who was in northwest Missouri who said you've been here 10 hours listening to our stories our sob stories she said why why in the world would you want to do that I can't imagine why you would want to do that and I said well you don't understand (laughs) my staff we fight to come to these things and help you And she said, that does not make any sense to me. And I said, now, everything we do in Blue Skies, we do for these moments. It makes all the plans we write, all the policies we write, all of the things we do, makes all of that make sense when we can sit across from you and provide the tiniest bit of help and hope on the worst day of your life. And so we love to come to the marks and listen to your stories if telling your story helps make your life better today. And she was overwhelmed by that. But that's the truth. We fight to go to the marks um, even though they're hard and they're grueling and they make you sad and they make you happy and they're, they're an emotional roller coaster. But they're a good thing. They're good for all of us because we need to understand why it's important to do the preparing work, and it is for those moments. We had, actually going back a few years to the flood that we had in 2017, I had a young man come and sit in front of me, I was doing intake at that time, and he and his fiance came and sat before me, and they said, here's what happened, and one of the questions on the intake form is, can we help you get any belongings out of your home? And he said, I think I saw my front door up in a tree, and you can probably get that, but that's the only thing we have left. Wow. And I said, where are you sleeping? This was the flood that happened over the holidays. Mm-hmm. So it was January, and I said, where are you sleeping? And he said, in our car because we want to be on our land that's all we have left is the land I said it's going to be five degrees tonight you can't sleep in your car and he said sure we can we did it last night and I looked over at her she just looked sad and she laid her hand on his arm and he said okay I'll take your help for her because I don't want her to be cold we were able to start casework on them right there and get them in a hotel for a period of time and then start finding them transitional housing while they made decisions about where they were going to live. But those are remarkable moments Mm. when you know that you've kept somebody from sleeping in their car when it's five degrees outside. Absolutely, We've had people, my staff's told me stories about people who literally have said, I just am feeling like I might not have much to live for. And we always have mental health behavioral services at Mark's. You know, when we hear things like that, we're able to get the behavioral health folks to come over and have conversations with folks and and hopefully, you know, keep them out of those darkest, darkest moments. So in addition to that, there's a lot of individual even though we're not counselors i think we do some spiritual and emotional care ourselves and at least recognize stress and trauma in others and try to get them help we saw more than 200 families at our mark here in jefferson city um which was was over a month ago i think
0: back in may 22nd i believe the tornado happened yeah
3: i lost I've lost track, Um, and we just finished a series across the state. We'll probably do another one. Um, Southern Missouri experienced some flash flooding, Um, so we'll probably do one down there. There's a timing Mm -hmm. um, issue with the marks. You want to try to get in as quickly as you can to get that immediate service. And then what follows marks, I alluded to it earlier, is that long-term case management then repair and rebuild comes in and we have partners that specialize in that as well so they'll come in and after the insurance has paid or for the uninsured or underinsured those folks can get help with repairing and rebuilding not only (laughs) will they go in and tear all the drywall out of your house if it has mold and they'll remediate that let it dry out and then they'll schedule to come back in and rebuild that for you. Again, it's just amazing how much they do and how much they love to do what they do.
0: Now that this event is kind of coming to its close, there'll be more events happening, flooding events kind of are what happened here in Missouri, so we're bound to have another one. Is there anything that you guys have learned through any of those events, but more specifically this recent one that you can then apply To the next one to be more efficient and to get the help more quickly to those who need it
3: yes and actually the response phase is coming to a close recovery phase is just now starting that's always interesting for me people say oh well we're over this we're over this event and it's like No, there are a bunch of us that are just kind of getting started with this event. But one of the things that can happen with a federal individual assistance declaration is I can apply for a disaster case management program grant. And what that grant does is bring in funds that can pay case management provider organizations. So, for instance, Catholic Charities um, of Missouri in the different dioceses. They have the capacity to provide case management. I can ask for positions and fund some of their people so that the salary money can go to direct services to those folks. We've had now two flooding decorations back-to-back. This would be our third. The first one, um, back in 2015, I applied for the Disaster Case Management Program grant. We hadn't had one since Joplin in 2011. And so I looked at it and eight to 12 months was considered perfectly acceptable time frame to get those funds. And I thought, that's too long. The voluntary organizations are carrying those costs that I could be helping with far too long and so I got eight got the first one in eight months still wasn't happy with it worked on it got the last one services on the street in six months I'm continuing to try to figure out what's that process because I'm still not happy with how long it takes And I talked to FEMA about it. And I talked to other states who are feeling the same way. I mean, we've had this discussion, um, my colleagues and I across the country. Okay, this is unacceptable. How can we make a difference at the state level? And then how can we talk to FEMA about changing this at the federal level? But those are the types of things that we feel like, if we can get better procedures in place, if we can get better plans in place, we can implement services more quickly. And that's the deal. You've got to try to get help in people's hands as quickly as possible. One of the things that's difficult about flooding is that it takes time. You can't go in and start doing your cleanup because the water's still in your house. And that is so frustrating for the survivors and I don't know what the solution is, but we're going to be talking about it. What is something that we could do in that interim period that would help the survivors physically and psychologically to make them feel better about that waiting period because there's there's nothing for it. You can't make the Mississippi go down any faster, but is there something that we can do for the survivors to help them feel better during that waiting period. So those are the things that we continue to look at. Can't always fix it, but if we can make incremental steps to make things feel a little better, that's what we're going to try to do because it really is about the way the survivors are feeling and and reacting.
0: Well, I feel like we've covered quite a lot of ground in our discussion, and I feel like we could continue to cover more and more ground in something like this, but is there anything in particular that you'd like to add that I didn't think to ask or that you would think would be very important information for people to know about?
3: I could continue to talk. You are right. I'm I'm quite passionate about my job and I hope I haven't droned on too long. I don't, I can't think of anything that I would, would like them to know other than that hope is available after these bad things happen. And it doesn't necessarily come from the government. It really is from these amazing people who do it out of the goodness of their hearts and not because they're getting a paycheck for it. I want to raise them up and and have everyone who hears this appreciate all of those willing and amazing volunteers.
0: help us close out our discussion on the recent disaster events that have hit missouri we're sitting down with mike capaneri who is the pio for fema and garth mcdonald who's the pio for the small business administration gentlemen i know it's a busy time for you guys but we appreciate you taking the time to come down and sit with us
4: Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you.
0: So before we kind of roll in with the discussion, if you guys want to just talk about what your roles are within your respective areas and how they
4: relate to the events that we've been through here lately. And Mike, I guess we'll start with you. Sure, well, as a public information officer with FEMA, my job is to just try and get as much good and hopefully helpful information out to the public. And going back to the damage assessments that occurred really throughout much of the month of June, when we think about all of the severe weather and flooding that hit the state of Missouri, really going back to March when you think about it, those damage assessments were completed in June and throughout that process, My role is to get good information out to the public about what the point of those damage assessments are, not just the public, but also our elected leaders as well. So at the state and the federal level, just information about the process. So for example, here in Missouri, once those damage assessments were completed in June, the governor used that information, all the data that was gathered about the damages to homes the businesses that were affected, et cetera, use that information to request a presidential disaster declaration request to the president. And just this past Tuesday, two days ago now, June, uh, July 9th, excuse me, there was a presidential disaster declaration that was declared. So now I'll be talking to the public and again to our other stakeholders about what that means in terms of assistance and try and, and help people as much as possible kind of bounce back and get on that road to recovery.
0: Yeah, we'll dive into some of that assistance and how it relates to the sure. disaster declaration. I want to get Garth in here. Uh, if you want to speak a little bit about Small Business Administration, what do you guys do within these events that, that happen?
5: Yeah, most people have heard of the US Small Business Administration, but they think uh, that organization helps businesses start up and grow. And With that program, we have loans that go through banks to help those businesses. On a major disaster declaration like this that was just approved by the president, there was 20 counties approved for the damage that began April 29th and has been continuing into the current timeframes. Those losses basically impacting homeowners, renters, businesses of all sizes, private nonprofits. In a disaster like this that's been declared, we can offer low interest loans directly from the federal government to both homeowners, renters, to repair and replace their losses on their primary residence and their personal property. And we can loan low-interest loans to businesses of all sizes and private nonprofits. So it's different than what most people think about the SBA. We've been doing federal disaster assistance for many years, and these are direct low-interest loans, long-term. We are basically, for a federal government Uh, when it comes to disasters, we're the primary source of long-term recovery. We try to help people with what's not insured. If they don't have flooding insurance, say, or tornado insurance of some kind, whatever's underinsured or uninsured, we can try to help them borrow low-interest money and have funding to get as close to pre-disaster condition as possible. And then, so we work hand-in-hand with FEMA now that the declaration has been made people should register with FEMA and Mike will talk about that and they should then most homeowners and renters all businesses and nonprofits are automatically referred to SBA the information they give to FEMA and then we would help them apply for these low interest loans
0: so would it would be safe to say that as we move into the recovery phase of the disaster and that the disaster declaration has gone through the SBA, this is your guys' time to really kind of kick it into gear and then get into the game, so to speak.
5: Yeah, we FEMA is the lead logistical federal agency. There's other federal agencies that will have programs available. So now that the declaration has been made for the April 29th through, you know, any damage that began on April 29th, that's the declaration that has been approved so far in the 20 counties throughout the state. And we can now offer these low-interest loans. And people don't have to wait for their insurance to settle if they've made claims. We can get them funds. And if they later fully recover from some grants from FEMA, some insurance money, they can pay down the loan with us with no prepayment penalty. There's no cost to apply with us. So it's sort of a process. FEMA, which Mike will talk about a little more, FEMA is the first step. And then we jump in and work with those individuals for the longer term recovery arm.
0: There's a lot of like, cross work that's happening with both of your guys' divisions, so to speak. You guys are working hand-in-hand hand to get this assistance to people. Can you guys talk a little bit about how that works?
4: So from the federal perspective, as Garth was saying, FEMA is the coordinating agency. I know it's not always the most uh, attractive way to, to think about uh, what we do, but we really are a coordinating agency. So. SBA the Small Business Administration is very much involved but other federal partners as well for instance EPA Environmental Protection Agency they've been up in the northern part of the state assisting with some of those orphan containers and what we're talking about are propane tanks that rose that floated due to the flooding and they're assisting with gathering those and making sure they're taken care of to make those areas safe so that's just another example of some of the federal partners that are doing work here in the state of Missouri. Now, specific to the um, disaster declaration and assistance to individuals, there were 20 counties that were part of the initial disaster declaration from this past Tuesday, July 9th. And I'll just read those counties really quick. There are Andrew, Atchison, Boone, Buchanan, Carroll, Cheriton, Cole, Green, Holt, Jackson, Jasper, Lafayette, Lincoln, Livingston, Miller, Osage, Pike, Platt, Pulaski and St. Charles counties. Now that doesn't mean that additional counties can't be added to the disaster declaration. They absolutely can. Earlier, when I was talking about the damage assessment process, in some areas there was real challenges when it comes to accessibility. I Meaning it was, it was hard for us. So that was FEMA, the state of Missouri, State Emergency Management Agency, SEMA, local officials, and SBA who were on those damage assessments as well. It, it was a challenge to look at some of the damages to the homes because the water was still high. So we utilized helicopters and did everything we could to get the best eyes on, if you will, in terms of those damages. For some of the counties, there might be a need to relook at the damages so we can go ahead and get that most updated look. And then based upon that, additional counties can be added. So for those counties that are part of the declaration, the first step is really for those affected to pursue their insurance if they haven't already, whether that's homeowners or flood insurance, that really is the first line of defense, as Garth was talking through earlier for someone that's been affected. Go ahead and pursue that first and foremost, and then register for assistance with FEMA. And there are two ways to do that. You can either go online, uh, disasterassistance.gov, it's just one word, disasterassistance.gov, or you can call 800-621-3362. And that's 7 a.m. to 10 p.m. local time, so central time, can go ahead, call, and get that registration process done. It takes about 20 minutes or so. There's some helpful information that you'll wanna have with you. Information such as your current address, the address of the damaged property, contact information where we can reach you Your social security number makeup of your household etc having that information ready will just help that process move quicker and as garth was saying the sba small business administration is very much involved when it comes to recovery by registering with fema either going to disasterassistance.gov or that 800-621-3362 you essentially get in the queue if you will with sba so it's automatic where we're able to determine based upon the impacts of that household, if SBA makes the most sense for their recovery, if there are assistance dollars that FEMA can provide. So going back to that registration process, after you register, you will get a call from a FEMA contracted inspector, and they will set up a time to meet with you. You have to be home at the time, but to look at the damages to your home to go through that now they'll have a, a badge and it's absolutely okay to ask for identification um, we encourage that they will have identification with them unfortunately these types of events sometimes bring out kind of the lowest of the low that try to make money and, and try to scan people so always be be sure to be asking for identification um, but they'll go out and do that inspection usually that will take place about three to five days after you register And then based upon the impacts, a determination will be made about funds that could go directly to help with the house. So we're talking about maybe windows that were busted out and HVAC that was broken. So some basic repairs to the home. And, you know, it might be an instance in which there's a voluntary agency that can really meet the need of that particular household. So it really is gonna vary based upon the unique damages, the aspects of that homeowner, but that's a little bit about what the the registration process looks like.
5: Yeah, and, and I'll just add to that, once someone registers with FEMA, the data that FEMA captures is automatically transmitted to SBA, and then we'll reach out to those individuals and those again are could be homeowners and renters. The vast majority of our loan program in disasters goes to homeowners and renters. Of course, we help as many businesses that need help as we can and private nonprofits too, but once uh, someone registers with FEMA, they may get some initial grant money, some limited funds to help them get safe or a roof over their head or seal their roof or things like that. And then they may also get money from their insurance company as well. And then we may make up the difference. Our goal is to try to have funds available to them at low interest rates for long-term payback that can help them get you know, at least as close to recovery as possible. So it's a little bit of a process of they get help from federal agencies and they may have gotten some help from nonprofits. They may get future help from nonprofits as well. It's kind of a team effort. As people will find out in the news, they'll hear about a recovery center opening nearby them. They they should start, you know, with their insurance and register with FEMA right away. And then we'll open along with FEMA recovery centers that are like one-stop shops for people to go get questions answered, talk to our people at SBA face-to-face, fill out an application right there online. We'll collect documents. The unique thing about really any of our programs that are available from the federal government, people don't need to know how much money they want, they need, how much losses they are. We're going to help them figure that out, both FEMA and SBA, and try to determine what their losses are what we are able to loan them potentially if they can qualify. It is a loan. The payments can be made to fit within their budget from SBA, and it is potentially a long term loan. And there's no payment initially due for the first six months, typically. So they're very favorable terms, as low as 2.063% for homeowners and renters, fixed rate, as low as 4% for businesses, and as low as 2.75% for nonprofits, so we try to make it work for individuals. There are some individuals that, because they're economically impacted, you know, they're maybe not working, or they have retirement funds only coming in, and their expenses to live are above what would be considered affordable to get another loan, we may deny those folks for the low-interest loan, but then we refer them back to FEMA And they're looked at for other needs that might be available with additional grants for other purposes. So it's kind of a process that we want people to go through. And even though they may be overwhelmed, still worried about where they're staying temporarily or their house, they should start the process and try to go make these phone calls and go online with FEMA, get that registration done, talk to their insurance company. We can help them start our loan process. And I'll give out numbers and websites for this at the end as well.
0: Now, this process that we're talking about—is this all possible because of the disaster declaration being declared? Correct. Yes. Yeah, so. so without it, this the amount of help that's available to people is substantially lower. So this is kind of huge that we've gotten the the disaster declaration. Can you talk about just the the importance of that?
4: Yeah. No, that's right, Eric. Uh, you know, the going through the governor's request for damage assessments that occurred throughout much of June and ultimately that disaster declaration request and the approval from the president, that's what triggers the flow of dollars. So while we're here talking primarily about individual assistance or dollars that go directly to impacted homeowners, there are also damage assessments. This just gives you an idea of the the scope of damages that has hit Missouri over the past couple months. There are damage assessments specific to public assistance, and it can be a little confusing. When you hear public, you think, I'm part of the public. Why isn't that assistance not available to me? Well, the way that the public assistance program, and believe me, if we could change that statutorily, I'd like to change the name of that program, Uh, but the public assistance program is really geared towards local government, helping them reimbursing for damages to public infrastructure. So there were 74 counties, and I think that's going to climb up to almost 100 counties in Missouri that have been requested for public assistance damage assessments. So as we're talking, there are teams in the field out and about in counties in Missouri in a coordinated way with the local emergency management, looking at the damages to roads, bridges, culverts, public buildings that were affected. We're hopeful that those damage assessments will be completed by early next week. Now, they've been going on for the past two weeks or so, but we're talking about the majority of counties in the state. So what will occur after those damage assessments are completed, the governor will make a request for them to essentially be added on to this disaster declaration, and then we'll be able to start the process of providing dollars to help reimburse local government, municipal, private nonprofits that are eligible, et cetera, uh, in terms of trying to get that infrastructure back to the pre-disaster condition. So all of this is made possible by the disaster declaration. So it's a pretty big deal. And just from the perspective,
5: as Mike said, it's kind of confusing, Eric, when you hear all these terminology. The declaration so far has approved individual assistance, which means homeowners, renters, businesses, and private nonprofits for the damages in those 20 counties that have been declared. The public assistance, the individuals that may be listening to this, their their city officials are really concerned about the public assistance declaration and the mayors and the emergency management coordinators for each county. But the, the local individuals don't have to worry about that. They have been approved for the 20 counties for individual assistance. And as Mike mentioned, there'll be some more assessments. The state may say, well, we think you missed some of the damage because of the water. So there may be some individual assistance counties added on as well. So some of those folks that maybe have heard, well, my county's not included and and I had flooding damage. That's not completely over with. The, The state will, we are here, both FEMA and SBA, at the request of the state. And the state decided that the damages for all this flooding and tornadoes is more than the state funds can handle. They can't manage this on their own. They've asked for this federal assistance. So there's a lot of aspects of it. So individual assistance is what's key to all of uh, the normal folks out there worried about their home, their rental apartment, their clothes, their furniture, their fixtures, their cars, things like that.
0: What kind of timeline are we looking at once... The disaster declaration is declared, everything's set into motion, probably not gonna get back to 100% normal of what things were before, but what's the timeline like once everything is back to normal as possible? When all the loans are out, all the assessments are done, all the recovery is at the max point that we can get? What kind of time frame are we looking at?
4: Well, with regards to timelines for the individual assistance grant program from the declaration date, so that'd be July 9th, there are 60 days that eligible that, that folks have to apply, folks in those counties have to apply. So we do encourage, as soon as you are able to, to go ahead and apply for assistance like we talked about earlier, going through disasterassistance.gov or 800-621-3362, the, the sooner that you are able to apply, the sooner you're able to see what type of assistance you might be eligible for. From our perspective, as Garth was saying, we wanna be as supportive as possible with state, local partners as well to help in getting the communities and the individuals back. Now with the Individual Assistance Program, it's important to know that that program is never gonna make anyone whole again. It's just not. That's not what that program was designed to do. It really is designed to help people get back on their feet and and bounce back with some repairs that can get their home to a just sanitary and safe place. And then SBA, Small Business Administration, and other voluntary agencies may be able to help with more solutions that would get them closer to where they were before the disaster hit, whether that was the, the flood, the tornado, or the severe weather.
0: Let's say just, you know, to kind of put it into context, I own a home. It's flooded. It needs massive repair or some level of repair. I go through all the, the paperwork and the channels to kind of get the funding to get that home just as much back to what it was before as possible. What is the timeline for the individual like? once i i'm on that that path i mean there's a lot of other people trying to get this same kind of assistance are they waiting you know weeks before their home is starting to be worked on months i mean what, what's that like yeah
5: when people register with fema which is open now for those 20 counties people may get some initial grant funds to help them with emergency needs the basics of what fema can offer that are not dependent on whether they've gotten an sba loan or not some of that is available upfront and can happen very quickly within a week or two potentially after you know an inspection a phone call from FEMA to follow up what happens then is insurance money they might be fighting with a claim with their insurance they may have gotten some initial money but they want to start rebuilding they want to get back to normal they can apply immediately after registering with FEMA they can apply to SBA they can go to SBA dot gov slash disaster or they can call for information and maybe an application we do most everything online but we can give them directions Uh, they can call 800-659-2955 i'll say that again 800-659-2955 and and they can ask questions about how should i apply what's the best way are there any centers open yet but once people make the application with us we will also start working immediately on their application, we will have it uh, what we call loss verifiers that will also contact the individual and try to determine what not what it's gonna cost to get the house safe and just temporarily livable, but what it might cost to get the house as close to pre-disaster condition, basically rebuilt. And we'll make an estimate. We can approve them within a matter of days and we can have them uh, sent out loan documents if they get approved for 200,000 which is our statutory limit for primary residence repair they don't have to take any of that money they don't have to take all of the money they take what they need to get as recovered as they want to but what we can do is approve the loan quickly and within 2 to 3 weeks uh, maybe 4 weeks on the outside for say a business or a more complex situation we can approve them for funds and start dispersing the money. And it's like a construction loan in a sense. To, as they, We start dispersing money, then as they get a contractor and bids, to find out what their actual costs are gonna be. Their loan may be modified a couple times or they may get some insurance money. We can't loan for the same thing that the insurance is paid for, but we can make up the difference. So their loan could be modified over a period of time. They can get money as they get make progress in their reconstruction, as they are able to get back in their homes, buy personal property. It's kind of a construction process. It does take time for people to get fully recovered, but the initial approvals and getting the money start to flow can happen very quickly.
0: Now, within those funds, is there anything that goes beyond just recovery, say like prevention, because flooding is quite prone here in Missouri. Mm-hmm. We've had many events, we're gonna to continue to have events in the future, in those funds, is there anything that's going towards prevention to help mitigate further flooding to the degree that we see?
5: You must have read our material. That's a great question because we do have some funds that we can loan for mitigation of future events as part of the low-interest loan from SBA. And so let's say they had uh, lost $50,000 worth of personal property, including maybe an automobile or two clothes, furniture, and they lost. They had 200000 Or $300,000 worth of damage to their home because it was virtually destroyed, we could loan up to 20% of that total losses before we take into consideration what insurance money they get for mitigation purposes, like protective windows, protective roofs for windstorm problems, maybe elevation if they're required to by a code requirement because they were flooded. And so we can loan extra mitigating money as part of our low interest loans. That's extra funds beyond what we can loan to repair the home as it was standing before.
4: Yeah, and with regards to FEMA, we can't say enough good things about mitigation. Recent studies have shown that for every dollar spent on mitigation, it saves seven on the back end after a disaster declaration. And Missouri actually is one of the leading states in the country when it comes to mitigation activities. So every time there's a presidential disaster declaration, like one we have now, there's something called the Hazard Mitigation Grant Program. It's a program that FEMA administers. It's actually implemented by the state, by state emergency management, But there are dollars that go to local communities for mitigation projects so earlier when you heard me talking about missouri being a great example i'm referring specifically to buyouts essentially what that means is acquiring flood-prone properties so if you go back to the 93 floods really thinking up and down the mississippi in particular in eastern missouri there have been thousands of homes that have been purchased from 93 to current day and hundreds of millions of dollars that have been saved lives that were protected, property that was protected for these areas that are prone to flooding. And it's a voluntary program, but it might make sense for the community to come together and say, hey, let's turn this area into a green space or a ball field, a recreational area. So another example of a mitigation activity, I know we've been talking a lot about flooding, but of course there was a lot of severe weather here in Missouri throughout the state, tornadoes in southwest Missouri in central part of the state, Jefferson City, et cetera. Well, an example of a mitigation activity would be safe rooms. So I know traditionally when people think of safe rooms, they may think of like an isolated room that's maybe connected to a building, but engineers these days, they're able to take rooms like schools, think about gymnasiums and auditoriums, And they're able to turn those into safe rooms, retrofitting or new construction where, to the naked eye, it just looks like a regular type of auditorium or gymnasium. But they're actually constructed where they're able to withstand winds in excess of 250 miles an hour, which is an EF5 tornado. So it's just a great example of mitigation dollars. And in fact, thinking about the tornado that hit Jefferson City, there was one of the elementary schools there. It was Joe D. Barter Elementary School. I remember we were doing damage assessments, and this came up as we were talking to some of the local officials in Jeff City and talking about how that was used for the first time during that tornado. And there were 90 families that took advantage of it and took shelter during the storm. It's just a great example of how lives can be saved and injuries avoided by, in that instance, taking advantage of a safe room that, if it was not for the decisions by the local officials to go ahead and put that in there, you know, that safe room wouldn't have been there. So, it's just a great example of uh, mitigation activity and mitigation dollars at work. Yeah.
5: So, as you can see, not only does FEMA have some almost like permanent mitigation monies that come about because of the declaration, that's usually after most individuals have tried to figure out whether they can recover or not. And then our programs have uh, attached to individual homes, trying to make mitigating efforts uh, to improve the chance that they won't be impacted on future storms. So many of the people that might be affected or considering a buyout would be somebody that's flooded two or three times before, and they finally have decided, I'm not gonna try to rebuild in the, in the state. will look at that, turn those areas into green space and kind of permanently mitigate that with those funds. And then for individuals that you know, do plan to rebuild, but they might want to elevate their home or put protective measures, protection walls or things like that. That's where our additional funds can be added to their loan, too.
0: So I know we're still in the recovery phase, but once we move through that, what does that landscape look like for you guys when we're in what uh, one of our previous guests called blue sky moments?
4: Whenever we're outside of a disaster response recovery, and we'll be here for as long as it takes, there's no doubt about that. Uh, But on that type of blue sky day, what we want to talk about is mitigation, which we've been talking about, also personal preparedness. So just talking about things like ways to stay informed, you know, in this day and age, you can get a weather related app on your phone, many free of charge. And with so many people out and about and so many people that have those phones, uh, just encourage people to, you know, download apps that are keeping track of weather and that are paying attention to potential hazards. Also the importance of having things like a family communications plan. You know, ready.gov is a great resource, just ready.gov. It's got a bunch of templates that can be populated. So I'm from the Kansas City area and I've got three younger children and they play sports and my wife and I feel like a taxi company sometimes shuffling people around. Well, when severe weather comes into the area, you know, we're in different spots. And if for some reason something hits and communications are out, phones aren't working, if you haven't ahead of time identified an area in which you're able to meet then that's something at that time you're going to wish you did Um, so just thinking through that also when there is a disaster no matter what it is usually if everyone's calling each other at the same line you know lines can get jammed it can be hard to, to get out if you can identify a family member or a friend outside of the impacted area. For instance, for us, it's my uh, parents in Connecticut. Um, So if we weren't able, my wife and I weren't able to get in touch because it's easier to get a text message outside of the affected area. It's more likely to go through. You can use that person as kind of like a depository for making sure that all of your friends and loved ones are are okay and taken care of. So those are the things that we want to think about, the importance of having a preparedness kit. You know, some of those items that would go not just at home, but also in your car if you're abandoned due to a, who knows, a, a significant snowstorm, which we do have. You know, just thinking about preparedness in general. So that's something that we try to talk about working with our partners at the state and local government through various events that are held, um, just always, you know, preaching the message of preparedness.
5: Yeah, and both FEMA and SBA have lots of efforts out there. We, of course, try to make sure business owners realize all the factors that would help them stay in business. Because in reality, the federal dollars that come in through FEMA and SBA are designed to support the state and keep their communities from falling apart, from from dying off because of a major disaster. So a lot of the money comes in to try to keep residents in their counties and try to rebuild their homes, keep business organizations alive and when there is a blue sky moment and this disaster if for example if some businesses that weren't hit by this flooding this is a wake-up call if you haven't gone and looked into fema and sba's website sba.gov disaster preparedness you could look up we have lots of ideas about have you reviewed your insurance have you do you have a communication plan Who's going to notify, handle your website to let your customers know you're still in business? How are you going to reach your suppliers? And all these aspects of both business and individual preparedness are hugely important. And if anybody in Missouri is listening to this, with the last spring and summer we've had so far here, they know, and this happens, you know, 93 and 2011 and it's, it's recurring activity. If they got by without damage on this one, this is a wake-up call. Know what your insurance covers and make sure you have the right insurance. Make sure you're, you have these plans like Mike talked about. So that's a huge thing that I would highly recommend it, you know, to benefit anybody that's listening to this, but wasn't really hit by this disaster. Cause those folks right now are trying to figure out how they're going to get rebuilt and recover. And then they're probably going to do a a preparedness plan for the future after that
0: yeah that's all really good information thank you guys for sharing all that something that we've been asking everyone that we've been talking to whether it's you know SEMA whether it's the police departments or, or what have you is when these events happen what kind of experiences are you guys taking away that you guys can apply to the next one to be more prepared to act faster to get that assistance to people uh, in a better way? What kind of experiences have you guys gleaned, or your departments have gleaned, from the flooding and the tornadoes that have happened recently?
4: Well, you know, if you think about the events here in the Midwest, so I'm talking now about Iowa, Missouri, and, and Kansas, and the reason I mention those states is those are the four states that our FEMA regional office in Kansas City is responsible for in terms of emergency management and from Nebraska, the federal perspective. And oh, Did I miss Nebraska? <laughs> yeah. Nebraska. Um, I was in Nebraska as well. Uh, but from this most recent, uh, sp- really going back to March, the the flooding that occurred in uh, those four states, it's, uh, it's to me always interesting, the unique aspects of a disaster. You know, it's true that no disaster, whether it's a hurricane in Florida, flooding in the Midwest, an earthquake in California, is the same. I mean, they're so unique. So you look at all of the damage to the cattle in Nebraska. I mean, you really, you feel for the ranchers that were affected there. Um, The impacts up here in Northern Missouri when it comes to um, the agricultural industry and Iowa and Kansas as well. And, you know, I think as much as possible, you try to, to take what you've learned in one state about unique aspects of their damage. And is that something that can be applied here? You know, let's learn from recovery programs that worked best in Nebraska and Iowa and, and try to apply them here in Missouri, since Nebraska and Iowa had their disaster declarations from back in, well, a little bit earlier in the, really the springtime. So, I mean, I think it's just constant. You're trying to better yourself all the time, um, trying to find what works, and it's something that we you know continually strive to do. Yeah, and we've
5: improved our online communication. Back and forth where people can upload information online. Now, not everybody, when they're hit by a disaster, has access to online tools. That's why FEMA and SBA, together with the state, open recovery centers where people can get face-to-face help, but we have improved online things. We do A lot of our verification of what a home size is, how many bedrooms, square footage, what the estimates of the initial damage might be, we do that online so we don't have to have a body go there initially. We can, As long as we know there's some damage, we can estimate their losses. And then as they get bids, like I said, they can give us more accurate data and their loan may be modified. But we can move through those. We learned lessons in Harvey, the huge disaster that was there. We learn lessons from Hurricane Sandy out in the East Coast, and we're constantly learning new lessons. In Nebraska, like you mentioned, that was a blizzard with ice breakups knocking down bridges. At the same time, severe thunderstorms and flooding. The state had, you know, has microcosms of weather that are impact the west side of the state completely different than the east side, and a huge agriculture basis. So USDA. It still has a major role in helping Nebraska recover from those flooding impacts. So, well, I
0: feel like we've covered quite a lot of ground and a lot of good information that hopefully anybody's listening can can use to to get back on their feet if they're not already using them. Is there anything about the disaster declaration or the recent flooding or tornadoes that would be good information for people to know about that we haven't talked about yet or that I didn't think to ask? Here's
5: one main thing: is so. We want people to take action and and move forward in their recovery. That's why we're here. Our staff is coming in as we speak. We'll be opening centers. Keep it, if you are impacted, keep it abreast from the local news, TV, and newspaper, if you have a local paper, maybe radio. We'll be opening centers throughout the state where people can get face-to-face assistance and ask questions, because they might get an letter from fema that says they're ineligible but it may be because there's a mix up two people from their household applied for the same thing they might have insurance and fema may need to know before they give grants what their insurance is going to cover and they should apply with us because we can help them move forward and we work as a team but we want to get people moving forward because when you're impacted by a devastating disaster the worst part is not being able to start moving in a direction and feeling overwhelmed with all this stuff coming at you. So taking some initial steps, getting your insurance claim filed, make sure that's in the works, keep working on that, register with FEMA. And what happens when people register with FEMA, most homeowners and renters and all businesses and nonprofits are automatically referred to us, as I mentioned, but before FEMA can make some determinations on some of the grants they can give, People have to go through our process. So if somebody feels like I can't take on a loan and I'm, I'm a renter and I can't even borrow $500 or $1,000 because I just can't afford anything, they still may be referred to us. And before FEMA can look at giving them personal property money, grants, things like that, we would have to review that. And then if we find out they have lack of payment ability or they had some credit issue, we can't approve them. We then automatically expedite that information back to FEMA, and that's where FEMA can relook at their case and maybe offer them some grants. So it's important to go through the process register with FEMA, apply with SBA. Even if you think you don't want a loan, you don't need to know, or you're not required to take any money, and there's no cost to apply. So take control of your own recovery, move forward, take those steps, and I believe you'll feel a lot better as you start to take control of your life again.
4: Yeah, and no, I'll just reinforce what we were saying earlier and what Garth was just saying. You know, If you're in one of those 20 designated counties, certainly pursue your insurance, get that going first and foremost to see what kind of coverage you have, and then register for assistance with FEMA if you've been affected. 800-621-3362, DisasterAssistance.gov. Just go ahead and start that process as soon as possible.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of MoCast, and a special thank you to our guests, Jonathan Garut, Melissa Friel, Deb Hendricks, Mike Caponeri, and Garth McDonald. If you want to listen to more MoCast, you can find us on SoundCloud or iTunes. And if you want to keep up with what's happening in Missouri state government, you can visit the state's homepage, mo.gov. That's mo.gov.